Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a special election 2020 episode of the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. What just happened? Who won the 2020 presidential election? Have reliably consistent Democrat cohorts like Latinos and Blacks shifted their support to Republicans? Why? How will this election shape our country moving forward? And who are the winners and losers? Will we ever find out? This and a whole lot more on this episode of TDR. Jesus, what the hell just happened? Where do we even I, I where do we know. where do we even begin? I mean, there's so much here. And by the way, just at the top, I I want to just stipulate that you know uh, all this stuff is real time. We're recording this episode a day later than we normally do because we thought we'd kind of push back on Tuesday and record this on Wednesday. Right. Um, Assuming that like, you actually would know something. By the right. way, it's Wednesday, ten seventeen in the morning Pacific time. Exactly. Just so. In case we say something that by the time Just you hear is, this is laughable, exactly. Is laughable. And exactly. That's exactly the reason why. Exactly. But on when, just you know, to sort of state the obvious at the at the outset, you know, we're working on real time information on a lot of this stuff. You guys will be hearing this on Thursday, and by then, hopefully, there'll be more sort of solid answers to a lot of things. Um, so you know, take that with a grain of salt, and also with respect to kind of the preparation that we typically do. Um, you know, we've been under the gun here because all this stuff is real time. So we'll be perhaps a bit more conversational today than we typically are yeah but it should still be a fun show where do you want to start well i mean i guess you can start with what do we know right and i would say the one thing we know right now is this notion of a blue wave of a blowout of you know this massive lead that you know that at least if you if you listened and looked at the polls uh you would have believed that would have been the case which is non-existent yeah. right this thing is understatement of the year yeah understatement of, of the year this thing is tight. It's uh, you know obviously still being sort of figured out real time. Um, but the whole notion of that blue wall coming or that blue wave, not blue wall, blue wave coming mm-hmm. in, um, I think that's one that we go back and probably put a sort of summary statement to 2020 election of the biggest understatement, to your point. Um, that's probably going to have to be right at the top of the list. Do you think, like, what happens to just the idea of polling moving forward? I thought about this with, um, specifically with uh, Nate, Sil- is it Nate Silver or is Nate it Silverstein? Silver. Nate, Nate Silver from yeah. 538, who got a little bit shellacked in 2016 for some of his projections early, but this time I looked it up, and, and f- like in the case of Florida as an example, Florida yesterday morning, election day itself, had a 70% chance of being a Biden win. And it wasn't by like 
you know, a half percentage point. It was like a decent Biden win. Right. And so like, you know, one of the notes that I took early on last night was just thinking about the reliability of pollsters and all of this stuff. How much of this impacts like them forever and how much of it is just like, no, that was just Trump. Let's say Trump loses and the momentum right now seems like it's in Biden's camp with respect to the outstanding votes because a lot of those are mail-in. So let's say he, he Biden wins. He's going to win fairly narrowly, um, at, at least in these battleground states. How, how do you feel about like, polls? Is it an aberration in general for the last four years because Trump is Trump? Or is it just there's something wrong about how we use these things and we got to stop? I I think that's probably the hardest question to answer, right? Because the way that I, my point of view of polls prior to yesterday, election day, uh, was was like, look, look, a lot of, there was definitely a Trump factor that people just didn't fully understand what he was and, and, and how to, I think you, you said this the other day, we were having a different conversation, but you said like, you know, in your mind, Trump was one of the first candidates that actually, or presidents that surpassed the, the, the party. That's bigger than the party, maybe a better way to say it. And to a large extent, I think that is the case, right? He, a lot of how he behaves, how he talks, the way he communicates, there's so much of it that it's just harder to predict that you can do all the modeling that you want. And it makes it really challenging. I also think that there is this this issue that you've mentioned before about this. Um, I forget what you call it. Is, is it the shy Trump voter or, or I forget what the right phrasing is? But basically, those folks that are sort of the undercover voters for Trump that won't be public yeah. about it, but they'll still support him. And so much of that, in my mind, has to do with who he is as a person, right? Who he is in terms of how he communicates, the stuff he says. Uh, how off the cuff he is about a lot of things that makes it just hard to be very publicly align yourself with the person, even if you agree with his policies, right? right. And that's what it kind of comes down to. Um, so I don't know in the poll, in the polls thing. I mean, you would you would hope that all that stuff gets sort of adjusted for uh, in polls, but apparently not. I mean, yeah. it's it's such a drastic thing now. The thing I haven't looked at yet is sort of state by state, which I think is actually the more important one to look at is where are the states, I think Florida is a great example that you just mentioned. I heard one this morning about Wisconsin, I think it was the other one, where I think he was projected to be like 10 points up uh, based on the polls. And um, while I think Biden may actually win that, win that state, or mm-hmm. at, least, at least leading it, uh, it's, it wasn't a case where he was, um, I mean, it won't be no, nowhere near the degree to at least what the polls indicated. I think that I think that a big part for me, despite the fact that, you know, my kind of opening salvo in this conversation, or at least in my notes here in front of me, is that just polls are garbage. But despite that, which is a real inclination that I have. But, but I think, wait, do you really believe that? The polls that, are garbage? That's where I'm going. I, I actually don't really believe that. I yeah. think that... I think that there's a lot of this that is directly tied to the dynamic of who actually Trump is. Um, you know, yesterday is an example, uh, which I, I literally never tweet, but yesterday- um, You tweeted? I tweeted. No, what? I, I actually, you know what? I actually I actually replied to a tweet. I, I, now, I rep- now, now I feel terrible that I wasn't on Twitter. Yeah. Mark Schuster, who's a you know pretty well-known venture capital investor here in LA- you know, tweeted out last night that what's clear to him is that were it not for coronavirus, Trump would have won in a landslide. And that, you know, he gave some other notes on that about Biden's, you know, platform, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody commented on that tweet, you know, maybe, you know, Biden didn't have a platform and and Mark kind of replied saying, no, I don't think it was that, it was this. Anyway, my one contribution to the conversation, which then Mark kind of tweeted back at me, was that there's only been one candidate in this race. There is Trump and there is not Trump. Right. So there's like yeah. two shades of one coin, I, you know, a 
one of the, I won't say who it was in case they're embarrassed, but somebody that we know said something about a, a jack-o'-lantern, it was during Halloween, could could be running against Trump, it would have gotten identical votes to whatever Biden's going to get, right? Like, it doesn't matter who, uh, that, and I don't think that dynamic has actually existed before. Like, I don't really believe that. I think that the the, the, the reality of, of people feeling, for better, for worse, wrong or right, that they can't say that they're going to vote for somebody, A, I think it's bad just for the country. And B, I think it exists with Trump in a way that I've never seen before. So it's hard to capture that in all of these, yeah. whatever, I'll algorithms think, or polls or whatever. And you, would, you know, the thing there is for those that do say it is the complete opposite of that, right? Because for those that I've seen that are very public right. Trump supporters, it's like it comes with a massive chip on the shoulder yeah. with a level of, at least for me, it seems like perceived anger already coming in. Like it's not a... I've yet to hear a very supportive, passive Trump supporter. I think as opposed to a very like passionate, fired up on the defensive and or offensive, depending on the situation. Right. And I think that's what you, and maybe that's part of what the media portrays a lot. I could I could also see that. Although I've, I've seen both in the media and also people that actually do it that do support it. Yeah. And I put them in those, in those camps, but I think that combination of having people that are on both ends, those that do support him but can't but don't feel comfortable saying it. And those that do are way over the top when they do say it. It's, yeah, it's and, not a good combination for trying to track how people actually feel about it. And I think there with anything, you have to almost de-average, right? I think that that's one of the lessons for me is the importance of de-averaging and all of this stuff. Because, to, you know, what you just said, I agree with you in terms of to the extent that people have been vocal Trump supporters, they tend to fall into a particular category. Right. But when you look at, you know, right now in the popular vote, I mean, almost 68 million people voted for him. That's like 6 million more than did last time around, right? And obviously we had monster voter turnout. Yeah. I think of that, you probably have a you know, single digit percentage that is the kind of person you describe, but they get most of the attention. By the way, I think you could say the exact same thing on the left side of the equation in terms of you know, the, the kind of manifestations and outpourings and protests and things like that, where you can point to people and go, see, like, you know, here's the left side of the equation making all this racket. But I think that neither of those properly represent the vast majority of the people that voted. 70 million, by the way, is what voted in the general election so far count for Biden, right? So 70 million for Biden, 60, almost 68 million for Trump. I mean, the window there is a couple million votes. I'm not sure where that was relative to 2016, but it's that's a lot of people to characterize all in one way in either direction. By the way, but I, I would disagree with with what you just said in terms of that you, when you look at those extremes. Yeah. I, I, in the case of those extreme on the left, I don't see them as extreme left Biden supporters because here's what oh, I would I say: with that. I agree with is that. Like they are yeah. they are sort of by default voting yeah. for Biden. It's not that that's their candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. you have extreme lantern. exactly. Yeah, no. You have extreme Republican supporters. Yeah. And to me, the the, the 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 best example was I think I shared this with you a while back. I was in um, um, up in Malibu, you know, gone hiking with my daughter, then went to stop by a place to get something to eat. And in that area, a pretty wealthy area, and in the parking lot is this massive truck, like um, you know those what do they call them? Monster trucks. Monster truck, I guess. Yeah, yeah. probably good. Got me a monster truck. Monster truck, and it had a massive flag in the back, mm-hmm. and it was a picture of Rambo, except for the head, where the head was replaced by Trump's head. Like, the, how anyone believes that that's yeah. like, an, like Trump has ever had any kind of physical attributes that would anywhere resemble yeah. 
Rambo is like you gotta be kidding me. But like that, that's what I mean by that. It's there, like yeah, you yeah. have the two extremes on the on the on the on the Trump side, and I think that's the challenge that you have for Biden is that while you do have, of course, folks, you always have in the extremes that are very liberal and in that camp of extreme that could be characterized. That's not what Biden is. And if anything, one no, of the takeaways for me as it relates to the effectiveness of Trump is somehow, despite that being the case, he's done a great or terrible, depending on which you know where you sit on this. A job of actually characterizing somehow like Biden being this extreme socialist, you know, all of the sort of the, the association with with the, with the extreme side of the, of the left, even yeah. though he is not that at all. Yeah, not at and all. And Kamala isn't either. Yeah, which is like that's the part that's, uh, to me is so amazing about this this presidential election. I think that's the the Trump factor, though. I think that that some of that though on the Democrat side is a little bit of of, of byproduct of the strategy, right? The, the the Democrats for decades have had a, um, what's it called, a coalition strategy, right, of kind of linking arms with a lot of different folks. And look, again, better or worse, like it or not, a lot of the very vocal people that they're linking arms with, the sort of establishment or centrist Democrats, are people that you can define, although in varying degrees, as as being at least, you know, positive or favorable or curious about positions like you know, socialism, right? In varying degrees. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders <laughs> calls himself a socialist, a Democrat socialist. I don't know how I feel about calling someone, uh, oh, you're a curious socialist. Like, uh, that seems know. like very different implications when you so- say that. Socialist curious. <laughs> no, but I'm saying like, again, it varies, right? So you look at AOC and Bernie Sanders, they call themselves Democrat, uh, democratic sorry, socialist. Democratic socialist. They're the For ones sure. who use the word, right? And other people like Biden will say, "I'm not a right." He's not that. He's, he's not. He's not just Connor. He's definitely not. Right. That. He's definitely like an establishment kind of centrist guy. But my point is that it's a little bit of a byproduct of your strategy of coalition that sometimes the louder parts of the coalition for that particular cycle get a lot of attention. Is what I'm saying. It yeah. seems that it has to do a lot with how it with what impacted the Latino vote. Is why I'm bringing this up specifically. Yeah, and I think the Republican Party kind. I went through that in the past as it relates to the Tea Party sort of fraction Correct. of it, right? Yep. Um, I think part of it, though, also comes from what well, you and I talked about in this podcast a few episodes back. I don't remember when it was, but when we talked about how the composition of each party has actually shifted over, I forgot what it was, over like the last decade or something like that, right? Where in the Demo- in the Republican Party, it's become a lot more just conservative. I mean, the, major- the lion's share of people that are in the Republican Party will fall into that conservative sort of bucket, um, and for Democratic Party, for for Democrats, I'm sorry, um, there's a lot, lot more mix. About half will be considered, I think, it was liberal. I'm, I'm trying to go off on the top of my head what it was, but it's a big share there. Still, party the conservative or some, some, some somewhere in that sort of centrist kind of uh, mm-hmm. approach. Um, and I think that's also reflective of that, right? Is that you have this kind of thing. By the way, that doesn't speak to the polarization within those, each one of those groups, right? For conservative and or and or liberal. But um, but as a composition of the entire party, right. uh, the Democrats have a lot more to contend with in terms of trying to keep more different parties happy with what the platform they're trying to push. This coalition, though, just to kind of go back to that, which has been made up of a lot of different, um, you know, cohorts, call it, inclusive of the lion's share of diverse communities and communities of color in the country. There's definitely some news there, at least from exit polling standpoint, yeah. that we need to talk about on some level. And, you know, this may be part one of like, 10 parts that we eventually do on this. Well, yeah, because I think we need to, I mean, part of the challenge right now is as we're talking about this, literally the morning after election day, so November 4th, is that so much so much of this is still being flushed out, right? There, there was um, a couple of different exit polls that came out. 
I think if we start with the biggest headline as it relates to diverse voters, it would be that, uh, according to exit polls, President Trump won about 32% of Latino voters and 12% of black voters, right? Now, that's a pretty sizable increase relative to 2016, right? In 2016, Trump did uh, 28% among Latinos and 8% among black voters. So if you look at those, just those numbers alone, put everything else to the side, just those numbers alone, for that, that would mean that Latino, he increased his his uh, support there by about 14% among Latinos, you know, voting. But with African-American, with black voters, it was a 50% increase. That's a massive, massive jump. Now, of course, we this is exit polls. This is not fully tabulated because so much of it is still being done. But even but that the trend, exit but the polls alone, like yeah. that's, that's very, very interesting. Yeah, I guess when, when you see that headline, Charlie, and I know we've been talking about this. Yeah. And I know you were mentioned, you were, I think, pretty vocal about this from before. I mean, it's kind of what, what, to some extent, I think we both expected this to happen. Just didn't know to what degree it was going to happen. On the one hand, I would say when I see this number, it's Latinos, it makes sense. For black voters, frankly, I, th- I thought it was going to be more. I thought it was going to be more. When you think about the push, what more, the per- I'm sorry, more what? More, a higher more, increase. A higher, a higher percentage or a higher on an absolute, like a point difference? Like you expected 20%? Both. Both okay. higher. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's not a share thing. Yeah, I think I think both. I just expected it to be higher, meaning that instead of being 12%, I thought it, he was going to push it up. Yeah. Maybe not say 20, but get somewhere yeah, in that neighborhood. Pretty huge. That's pretty big, right? But when you think about you know, the stance that, uh, and then how, how specifically he was going after the black vote, especially over the last, I don't know, two months, I would say, is when they really stepped it up. Mm-hmm. I did think that the work that he was doing, that the platform they put out for Planum, for the Planum plan, once again, and we talked about this in another, another podcast, if you remove his name from it, you're like, yeah. there's some stuff here that's actually pretty interesting. Yeah. The, you know, the work with Ice Cube, the last minute support, although I, I always, like, I cringe when I see you know, politicians feeling like the only way they can get the black vote is going through rappers. Like that is, a, you know, I think that could also backfire on you a little bit. Um, but nevertheless, it, it was part of a, of a very focused effort of trying to gain more of the black vote, which it looks like it worked. It's just in my in my mind, I thought it would be a little higher. I think it's a variety of things, to be honest. I think part of it is we kind of all go back to, on some level, the availability of information and, and data and social platforms. But I can tell you what, one thing that I definitely have seen a lot more in the last few years is black conservative voices on social media. Now, I know some of that is just because I'm getting programmed by, by the algorithm myself, but I've also seen black conservatives on tickets too, running, right? Like yeah. here in Los Angeles, running against Maxine Waters, Joe Collins, um, in uh, Baltimore, has famously, that been called? By the way, I haven't I looked at that. I, I, he he was he was way behind. He oh, was, was it okay. was like seventy five twenty five the last okay. time I looked. So it looks like Maxine Waters will uh, will be able to uh, to die in her uh, in her seat um, at some point. I mean, she's been there for sixty years now. I think something close to it. But she she looks like she's going to retain it. But also um, uh, Kim Klasik in Baltimore, and I think you know a lot of this. Also, you've seen more popular um, figures in the whatever you want to call it mainstream Candace Owens which we've also talked about and other people you know who have come out and built pretty significant platforms and just presenting to the black community at large a voice that like let's be honest is just not even heard in kind of the mainstream way so I think that's also played a part in it and I think yeah and I think like honestly the other part is um you know, Trump's initial take, which was kind of, you know, ridiculed for its maybe simplicity in 2016 about like, and for its offensiveness, right? The what, what do you have to lose kind of thing? Um, 
you know, that whole idea of actually appealing to people on like kind of a, a of a regular everyday like, hey, you know what? I think you can do better. You can be more prosperous. You can actually do this. Take a chance. What do you have to lose? As as counterintuitive as that may sound to us, you know, is like unsophisticated. I think that had some effect in terms of like, yeah, right. I don't have a lot to lose, you know, if I find myself in a particular situation. So I don't know. I think it's a combination of things, but I didn't think it was going to be on an absolute basis. I didn't think it was going to be this high, to be All honest. Right. Yeah, because that's a huge move. It, it uh, is. From it's a 50% increase among a group that has been so historically entrenched. So the thing the thing that I don't know, and we haven't seen yet, maybe, uh, maybe you And it may be lower. I mean, I don't yeah. know when it's all said. What's down. really interesting is when you start putting the onion in this, right? And mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about right now some of the, I think, especially two key states, Florida and Texas. But when you look at the overall number of 32% for Latinos and 12% for black voters, what isn't clear to me is what of that percentage is actually new voters, right? Because that's the thing that I think that's also that's another big, super important big point. X factor right. in this political yeah. uh, election is that we, I don't know how much of that was turning people that had voted one way versus the other, or frankly, getting new people into the voting process that just hadn't voted before, right? That to me as a, as a big storyline that will come out of this, I think will be really interesting to see who actually did a better job of getting new voters to to come in and be part of the process. And to that point, then who do they actually support, right? And and that may change the dynamics because I, you definitely have, I think in both camps, Latinos and, and, and Blacks, a lot of people that just choose to just stay out of the process altogether, yeah. right? Because they feel disenfranchised by both sides. They feel like neglected, ignored, that ultimately these candidates don't really care about them except for when it comes to the election cycle. So. That that's that's thing is one of the questions that I definitely want to be able to hopefully get into as 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 the sort of the the period passes on and we get more information as to what actually happened. This is where I also think that the long term effects of this shift, and we'll talk about Latino in a second, which is maybe less percentage gain on a share basis, but still pretty dramatic. Um, this is where I think some of the long term effects. Can can you know? I have a question about whether or not there's long-term impact to that coalition strategy that the Democrats have had for generations. If um, if some of these changes hold for the next whatever Republican Senate race or congressional race or presidential one, because when you're talking about groups the size of the Latino community, the size of the African American community, those percentage changes, even on an absolute basis, are not that big. They actually can make a big difference, especially in key states. And so yeah, this this, sure. I, this idea that you know that you know urban city centers or 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 communities of color <clears throat> you know disproportionately vote another way and by the way they still do this is not like they stop doing that but that shift to me indicates could there be a larger thing afoot could there be a larger shift about these kind of constituencies that have been in these different parties changing right because I can tell you the Republican Party has definitely changed you know um, from the kind of at least marketing wise, right? Messaging wise, much more populist, much more about the farmers, much more about the working guy, all this kind of stuff. And I, mean, I wonder if the same honest, has happened. Trump made the other a change. Side. I mean, he forced that issue, right? I mean, to when, you know, when I think about the Republican Party and what they were going through when they when Obama won the first time, you know, that seemed like a moment where they had to sort of look in the mirror and figure out what are we going to do differently? Uh, which I thought was a very similar kind of strategy his second uh, his second term and still weren't able to succeed against them. Also, you know, when we, when we think about an actual president that had hope built into him, it's his mm-hmm. whole strategy. I think Obama was probably the last one that I could think of that really had hope as the driver. I think Trump did a great job of, of stroking people's 
um, insecurities, fears, et cetera, in a very effective manner. It's not, I'm not even saying that as a knock. I'm simply saying, like, just from a pure marketing messaging standpoint, he did a really good job with that. And, and I think that's what he would, he would create. And I think that definitely has shifted the, the party altogether. Uh, it's made it a lot more conservative, in my mind, than what it was before. So it is interesting when I think about some of these groups, Latinos or African-Americans, uh, voting Republican, does that mean that there's just the the, repo- the the conservative values of those groups are starting to win out in this conversation? Because yeah. it definitely feels like a party that is, it feels a party that is more focused on less people or less, or, 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 or yeah, less variety of people, I guess would, would be a different way to put it. Mm-hmm. Which which party? The Republican Party. Okay. Meaning that it, it, it continues to feel more and more conservative, that it unifies squarely in that conservative um, um, characterization. So you're, right. so you're thinking, saying less diversity of ideology. Not yeah, you're not yeah, talking yeah. about ethnicities. No. Yeah. Okay. No. Uh, the ethnicity question that I do have as it relates to uh, those voters, those black voters, mm-hmm. Latino voters, is that yeah, I'd love to understand the why. Like, why did they, you know, why did they choose to to vote vote Republican? Is it once again more of an ideology? Is it is a pure fact of who is actually addressing our needs and who isn't? This is where I think the Florida situation is. Always interesting, but I, I always take Florida with a grain of salt. I will take Miami always a grain of salt because if there's any city in this country that I think when I, when you go, you know, have you ever done those things where like, which of this is not like the other? Sure. I will put which of these things right. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I would always put uh, Miami in that category. Is sure. like especially for Latinos. For, I'm sorry for cities that have high Latino populations. Miami to me is the one that is significantly different than any other city here in the in the states. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about Miami and Florida and Latinos in general. Um, you know, across the board for uh, f- and, and there's a couple of stories here that I think are worth are, are worth looking at. But you know, for Latinos in Florida, um, across the board there was a pretty significant increase, right? So it's, it looks like at least at this point that about 47 percent of the total Latino population in the state of Florida that voted, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, that voted in the state of Florida, 47% voted for Trump. Now, obviously Miami-Dade is, is within that, that, that component. So we have to kind of look at that a little bit, a little bit separately. See your your phone's screwing up our podcast, Jesus. Got to turn it off. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Especially my computer that also picks up the rain. By the way, side note for anybody who's an audiophile in the audience, I am so excited to be able to have this, this podcast today with our audio equipment finally and forever and ever fixed for all eternity (laughs) because now we can actually talk without it being like a walkie talkie because even though we're in the same room together we had our audio going into two different places now we have it into one so we can actually talk like regular people but anyway that is a that is a definitely sidebar um anyway but but that's the latino population i think it was 32 percent the last time uh, 35%, in Florida, 35 percent 35 percent in florida yeah. so that went from 35 to 47 right 12 point increase across the board in the state and then some very interesting nuggets when you kind of dive down into the into the specifics of miami-dade county yeah so and by the way just to take even a step back you know trump won or as he's i think i, I think it's about 95 percent of the vote has been counted so once again these are not all final numbers but it looks like he's going to win the state by about three and a half points versus um, uh, versus Biden, which is you know a pretty big increase versus in, compared to 2016. 2016, Trump did win the state, but by by about 1.2 percentage points versus Hillary Clinton. So she did a better job of getting at least closer to trying to turn the state uh, blue in this case, right? Um, when you look at that Latino vote, a couple of things, right? One is we look at the sort of where that contribution actually came from. So 55% of Cuban Americans uh, who voted, voted for Trump. 
about 30% Puerto Ricans and about 48% of all Latinos, right? So if you think about all the other sort of mix, Venezuelans, you know, Colombians, and you have, you know, quite a bit of mix of different sort of representation of, of various Latino roots there in, in, in Florida. But about half of those. Other Latino would this, basically mean South American, though, in this, for the most it's part. It's primarily South case. America, yeah. I mean, in many ways, you know, this is why I consider Florida and specifically Miami as, as such of just a different animal than the rest of the of, of the country is that it is very much the doorway, the connection to the rest of Latin America, specifically South America, mm-hmm. right? So you do have the kind of that, that mix there. The thing that was probably most interesting out of all of this outside of Latino vote is what happened in Miami-Dade County, right? So Miami-Dade County, which is a county that I think historically has gone blue, um, is you have uh, Trump that basically did about 334,000 uh, that has increased his his voter his his, his votes uh, from three hundred thirty four thousand in twenty sixteen to up to five twenty nine thousand, so about fifty eight percent increase, which is a huge jump. I mean, if huge, that's huge jump, yeah. right? Huge jump for for him and just that county. Uh, for Biden, at least once again, at about ninety four percent of the votes counted, was it looks like to be on track to be about the same as Hillary did in twenty sixteen. So he had six hundred thirteen thousand versus six twenty four, which is what Hillary did in in twenty sixteen. So what you see there is sort of consistent sort of level of support for Biden, but Trump having a, a pretty large jump um, there in that county, which ultimately led to his larger win uh, in, the, in the state. Now, this goes back to one of the issues that you brought up in the beginning when you looked at some of the polling data for Florida. This is a state that, you know, was being projected that Biden was going to win and, you know, win in, in pretty good fashion. So it is really interesting to see how different the actual outcome is. Versus what you know what was being projected, or at least in, in what the polls were saying. But when you look at the what the issue is behind why Biden lost the Latino vote, and we, I've not heard it from different places, I read a couple of different different things about this, but I would say there's at least a couple of key things that maybe mm-hmm. we can cover, right? Yeah. So one is Trump definitely did a very consistent job of focusing on Florida early and centering against issues that were relevant to the Latino population there, right? Not all Latinos, but Latinos in Florida, right? So a couple of examples of that. One is uh, pretty early on, he uh, he announced the reversal of, uh, of, of President Barack Obama's policy of engaging with Cuba uh, and did this specifically in the in the little Havana in the neighborhood in Miami, which is very sort of, that's the heart of the Cuban America sure. sort of uh a space there, and you can imagine if you detonate something there, it's going to travel, right? So if you get the for sure the the you know the elders to like latch onto this idea, it's going to pop, it's going to go throughout the community, and that seems like that's part and this of what is a, it did. That's actually a, a topic that I would say is is very at the core, at the heart of Cuban Americans in Florida that most of us that are not in Florida that are not Cuban don't fully understand. You know, I would say just like a little bit of a personal note. I remember for me the very first time I went to Miami. And I was having this conversation with someone, and the whole subject came up of Che Guevara, right? Uh, it was a very controversial thing. I didn't realize how hated he was amongst the Cuban you know, uh, American community, mostly because they saw him as a terrorist, right? Now, he is a person that you know, spent a lot of time with Castro. And outside of Florida, and this is me coming from the West Coast, I remember growing up and having a lot of people that wore him on T-shirts, and it was oh, all like, yeah. oh, yeah, this is going to... I never got that either, by the way, but I spent some time in Florida. Yeah, but it was the the whole idea of like, this is a guy that didn't play by the rules, kind of a gorilla, right? But it didn't have the same, nowhere near the same connotation, not even like complete lack of understanding outside of how people viewed them viewed in Florida. So I think to me, it's a great example of how this is the kind of issues that 
definitely resonates with that with that group that is really not at all connected, or at least not to the same degree to the rest of Latinos in, in, in the other parts of the state. The other part that I think uh, Trump did here is that he was also pretty, you know, vocal in in, in terms of their approach of addressing Venezuela. And right, so his the national security advisor uh, John Bolton. Uh, revealed twice to Miami, uh, or traveled twice, I'm sorry, to Miami to announce sanctions against what he dubbed the Troika of of Tyranny, which is Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, right? Mm -hmm. All socialist countries. And I think that's a key point in this conversation with with Florida. The whole sort of pushback against these these, uh, governments that are socialist governments and the close tie-ins that those communities have in Florida um, and frankly, I'm sure that you know those bad, all those bad experiences that they had from those from those home countries. I, I think that's a huge point, actually, because I know you just mentioned all the whole the the, the Cuban American stronghold and how important it is, and it is. But if anything, Cuban support has dropped for Trump in this cycle, right? In in um. Um, in 2016, Hillary Clinton actually picked up 41% of the Cuban-American vote. Biden picked up 45 in this case, right? So yeah. it, it actually went up. Oh, it's interesting, yeah. So I think the more interesting- that makes sense, right? Because yeah. from a, it's a generational thing too, right? The, those that have the strongest I think so. tie into the anti-Cuba yeah. sort of stance, it has to be people that those were directly, who, those that like literally had to like flee yeah. the country and- Yeah, and they remember Che Guevara because like they saw yeah. what he did, which was not good, right? right. Firing squads and a lot of killings. Exactly. Um, but, this, but his kids may, I don't know if anybody of, the, of their wearing them on a t-shirt, but maybe more, yeah. whatever, they may be less connected to it. So I think the really interesting story though about this is what happened in the other Latino cohorts, namely, which is sad that they put other because I think that mostly means Venezuela and Colombia and that kind of thing. Right. And then also the Puerto Rican, because that's actually a, a block that is pretty reliably more, I guess, more Democrat than it ended up being in this case. So I think that, and that's where your point makes a lot of sense, right? Venezuela in particular, right? The whole idea of the specter of socialism. Well, if you're from Venezuela, like you know what that actually looks like. You right. know the bread lines, you know the corruption, you know all that stuff. As I, I, grew, I grew up in Venezuela, spent some years there, but at a time that was completely different, right? So I have the perspective of remembering my childhood in Venezuela and then seeing the images of Maduro and Chavez and these guys and what they've done. Like that's very powerful, and I'm not Venezuelan, right. but I have that experience as well. I think that's actually a very powerful uh, reason why. And again, back to the sort of downside of this uh, uh, strategy that the Democrats have had, that you kind of get, you know, tainted by your bedfellows, and and you have to take it when it's good, and you also have to take it when it's bad. And in this case, it actually hurt them. Yeah, especially hurt with them, this group. It hurt them a lot because specifically. Um, the Trump campaign was very effective and very consistent, although extremely misleading, and actually messaging and casting Biden as a socialist, right? And I think even at one point, called the, the Castro Chavista, right? Referring to Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. Uh, and that kind of messaging, they did a, they were very consistent in using uh, Spanish language media ads uh, to drive that kind of messaging, being very effective of, of just tainting that. To your point, casting that kind of picture over him, even though he's not that, but to your point, by yeah. association, you know, gets put gets put in that bucket, and ultimately, I think that that has a pretty you know pretty massive effect in terms of how some Latinos from these countries that are social that are actually socialist countries uh, would feel about any kind of presidency that could move them an inch closer to you know that kind of reality. Yeah. By the way, the other interesting stat in terms of of Latino support in the state of um, of Florida, we talked about thirty five percent was the total for uh, Trump in 2016. That went up, right, to uh, 47. To 47%. Um, in, in Mitt Romney, 
actually got a higher share than Trump did in 2016. He got 39% of the vote. So it, it seems like the Latino vote went for Romney, dropped for Trump, and then now just dramatically went up um, relative to the last few elections in terms of Latino support. So definitely, right. you know, a lot going on there. I think that it is tied, uh, like I said, a lot to this kind of, um, you know, socialist piece. And I, but, I, but I do think that the story is not, for me, is not the Cuban part of it, because if anything, they're shedding um, uh, you know, support for the for the Republicans, so they, they're becoming less reliably Republican. It's the other groups that I think are interesting, which have historically not been there, that now seem to be at least getting closer to being supportive. But do you think if we were to put a trend line mm-hmm. and have this sort of flash forward, is that a sustainable gain, right? Because if your core issue with if this group part of the core issue that they have is because of their frankly terrible direct ha- first-hand experience of what a socialist government actually looks like. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, having to flee from it or having parents, grandparents, so they're still a close enough time. As those generations get re- more, more removed from those direct first-hand ties to those countries, does that become less of a reason to actually tie in? It's basically, the the what you're in some ways we can sort of characterize as what's happening with Cuban Americans. Yeah, I think it does. I think it becomes more distant and it becomes less reliable or less less effective. But then maybe something else picks but as it up. But a strategy right now, it was very effective. I think. Yeah. No. Agreed. So who knows what becomes more important down the line? I do think that it fades. Obviously, like you know, gen, three generations from now, are there is there going to be the same level of interest or connection and things that were previous or that can be perceived as socialist as being bad? No, I don't think so. I don't think right. that's the case. Um, but then maybe something else comes up that does become that, I don't know if it's upward mobility or whatever, small businesses, something will, you know, can potentially become part of that strategy. But right now it just seems like that's what it was and it seems to have been effective. So, you know, big changes in, um, in, in the Latino side on the Florida point. The other point that I just want to mention really quickly, because I've never lived in Texas, you have, Mm -hmm. so I don't know the layout there, but one of the stats that I heard as well, relative to the Latino population was the massive gain that was made in the most Latino county in the country, which happens to be Texas, uh, Texas's Star County. I don't even know. Where is that, by the way? Uh, it's no idea. Okay, so Star County, which we'll look up in the background. But um, Texas Star County is 99% Latino. It is the most Latino uh, county in the country. And they had the most, on a percentage basis, the most dramatic shift so far, at least based on the data that we have, from 2016. In 2016, less than 19% of the votes went to Trump. This year, nearly 50% of the votes went to Trump Mm -hmm. in the most Latino uh, county in the country and in what I think is a border county. But I'll- I'll, It is. It's it's part of the Rio Grande Valley, Okay, right? And uh, I think you have a lot of factors going on there. So we, we did take a little bit of a look in terms of what happened in Texas, right? And, you know, to your point, I guess just to- Rewind a little bit in terms of what happened to the overall state. So it looks like once again Donald Trump is is you know has won the the, the state uh, with a margin of victory of six point versus Joe Biden, right? Mm-hmm. Which seems to be the narrowest um, for any Republican since Bob Dole beat Bill Clinton by five percentage points in 1996. Um, Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton by nine points in uh, 2016. So at least there, the gap overall got a little bit closer. Um, and this is another one of those states that if you looked at the polls, there was at least some uh, speculation that it had a chance to turn to turn blue, right? Purplish to a chance to turn blue. And at least based on what you see here, it looks like it got closer. It didn't quite make it. Uh, some of it definitely was tied to um, to what happened with uh, specifically with the Latino vote. Right. Um, so 
part of, but the biggest reason why Trump won is because he has a huge edge among white voters without a college degree, right? He wins about 45% of them, uh, according to that Times exit poll. Uh, and but then make up ground for non-whites that don't have college degrees, particularly Hispanics, right? So Biden won the Hispanic vote in Texas by 19 points uh, this year, right? But that's down from what Hillary Clinton did, which is she won by 27 percentage points uh, margin in 2016. So Hillary really outperformed, and a lot of that outperformance was in the Rio Grande Valley, specifically in those in those counties like Star County, right? Now at least what in what we've read here, part of the issue that they bring up is that to a large extent, you know. Hispanics just didn't, especially in those areas, just didn't know Biden as well as it did Hillary. And it wasn't Hillary necessarily because of Hillary, because of Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton has a lot of ties to that area, specifically visited quite a bit. So I think there was a familiarity with Bill Clinton and by extension Hillary that she benefited from that Biden did not benefit from, right? Now, here's where I think one of the themes starts to come up, which is when you look at some of the reasons why that happened is in compared to to, uh, Donald Trump, and I saw it in some of the reports about Florida, definitely saw it in Texas, is that just the ground game of the Trump campaign was just better. And in part, and this is where I think the COVID effect has a major issue, is their point of view of the pandemic and how basically uh, conservative they were going to be or not in terms of being out there, talking to people, meeting people. And the Trump campaign took the bigger gamble and said, hey, we're going to get out there. We're going to we're going to meet with people, make them, you know, get them, let them know us, et cetera. And that seems to have had, you know, had quite a bit of an effect. Uh, and it happened, I think, in, in Florida, at least from what the reports are saying. And it definitely seemed like it happened in Texas. But the part that's that's so I agree with everything you just said. And I, and, and I think that that is part of it. I'm still remarking at the size of the shift, though, because to go from 19 percent to almost 50 percent is, you know, is a 250 percent increase sure. in terms of that vote. And I find that saying Biden just didn't have good name ID for a guy who's been half a century in office is like, I don't know, that one doesn't, I think there's something else there. And I don't know Texas in order to know what's there. Right. I think the dynamic but, you also get in the Rio Grande Valley is that you also have Latinos that have been there for generations. This is, it's a, it's a different dynamic. I mean, you can make that argument about every single like a state, but it is it is a different dynamic that you see in some of these some of these areas. Having lived in Texas, having actually worked in McAllen, which is another border border city, yeah. when you speak to Hispanics that are there, you do have those that are sort of commute back and forth between the Mexico side and into uh, uh, into into the U.S. But some of those families that have been there in those border states have been there for generations. They they just have a different point of view. So you think in terms of how they how they operate, how they think is is So you think it's possible they've just gotten more conservative over over a period of time. I think yeah, I think that area in general is very conservative for sure. Okay. Um and it's also you have it's just a different dynamic in terms of immigration trends etc. because you have people that have been there for like quite a yeah. while, right? Um, I also wonder. But it's such a short period of time, though. It's not. We're not. I mean, I would. Un- I understand that point if you were talking about but four the, years ago. But, but, it's but four I think years the, ago. I think the issue has more to do with Hillary and specifically the how people felt about Bill Clinton mm-hmm. and his connection to Texas and that region, and the benefit that Hillary got as opposed to. I, I mean, it still doesn't fully explain as big of a drop, but I think there was definitely a higher lift. I think what would be interesting to look at is what was it before then? What did Obama do? Right. That will be pretty interesting to yeah, look at to see to see how it was, but at least as it relates to the tie between Hillary and and uh, and, uh, and Biden, there's that. I also kind of wonder, you know, when you think about some of the politicians that were there during the the time when Hillary was running, was like Beto O'Rourke was mm-hmm. like a massive name there, had mm-hmm. a lot of momentum. 
uh, and what role did he play then versus not playing now to actually make some of this impact? Well, I think what's clear is there's just so many different variables. I joke with somebody on the phone earlier today about the coffee table. Oh, no, this was yesterday with you. The coffee table book on 2020 is like a four yeah. inch, you know, binder of which an inch of it is just these kind of questions because there's a lot we just don't don't know. And then part of it, I think also, and this is one I read this quote from uh, Chuck Rocha, who was a political strategist who basically focused on Latino voters for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Right. And, yeah, I've heard of which, him. which they call him mm-hmm. Theo Bernie. Uh, who, for those that don't know, Bernie was very effective in getting the Latino vote. Um, And what he was saying is, and I quote him, he said, look, I'm currently tracking over half a billion dollars that have been given to outside super PACs to boost Joe Biden in the presidential election. Yet, and less than 1% of all that money went to Latino super PACs. So his point was that, hey, we're just not, we're neglecting this group. We're not spending enough money to connect with them to to basically you know make the inroads and the Republican Party is not only are they are they spending the money but they're they're there in person working the the, the, the ground game and I think it's an interesting uh, assessment of what the situation is in terms of investment of the most important mechanism and tools to be able to have make that connection I wonder if you go back and look at well, what role did digital play? What role did maybe we over-reliant, I say we cause as, as a Democrat, but see what I'm saying, like what, what role did uh, over-reliance on digital, maybe in part for a good reason saying, hey, we need it's to be It's the most efficient, careful, most effective, most efficient, whatever. whatever. But also, and also, uh, this is where I do think the coronavirus plays a, a role. It's like, hey, we also want to be safe in our approach of how we do this. Right. And how much did that actually hamper the ability of, but the, it's of funny the campaigns because, to connect? But it's funny, though, because what you just said about you know being on the ground, having a ground game is now, when we think of that term, we now think about it including Facebook ads as part of your ground game. It's like, no, no, but the ground game used to be, be the whole reason you call it ground game is being on, on the, the ground, ground yeah. right? And I think in some of the work that we've done for clients in terms of that connection with the community at that level and how important it is, particularly with the different levels of different generational levels and different levels of acculturation, we actually know from our data that that's actually true. They actually, with the Latino community getting close and getting the whole convivencia thing, the whole getting together, that actually drives a lot of this. So if if your ground game is, you know, door hangers and Facebook ads, like, yeah, that's probably not going to work the same way that actually what, getting there and, and getting a little closer. I might. think a, a great use case is going to be um, once you look at the, and you have to wait for the election to be over, but to compare Arizona to Texas. I think that's going to be a really interesting dynamic to look at because at least, and I've, I've had I had heard a couple of different podcasts talking about some of the grassroots work that was being done in Arizona, specifically in, in trying to cater to Latino vote. And how that compares to maybe what happened or, or, or didn't happen in Texas. And then you may see some very different outcomes. As of right now, literally as of 11 o'clock in the morning, you know, Biden is winning that state right now. We'll see. I think it's only about yeah, 80, 86% of the of the vote has been counted. Some places have already called it for him. But yeah. in any case, it, it's just he's, he's when, you, win when you look at the outcome is what I'm saying, right? It's yeah. like, it, I'm sure it's going to be probably a pretty big difference. And I am curious specifically on that point, you, on ground mm-hmm. game playing a role in active in Latino vote. Do you think any part of this, though, has to do with uh, former Angelinos and San Franciscans and other Californians moving to these states in bigger levels than ha- that they have? I mean, historically, there's oh, been yeah, a- yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so that's why, you know, look, with te- Texas is a, great, it's a good example of this, right? A lot has been said- A lot of over, over Over the last, you know, California. few months, um, especially because of, you know, I think Joe Rogan is, frankly, has put so much of a bright light on this. And yeah whether he wants to admit to or not, there's people that are going to move to Texas because of him. 
and how much he talks about it. Now, you know, in, in one of the recent episodes of Joe Rogan, he was interviewing uh, Matthew McConaughey. And he was talking about, you know, Matthew McConaughey was a guy from Austin, was saying, look, he was he basically was making the case of what makes Austin great and how important it is for him that they keep the Austin culture, even though there's big influx of, of Californians. And Joe Rogan's first time to like, hey, I, just, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want, I don't want to do it. I want to encourage people not to mess up this culture. The reality, it is going to change. And I do agree with you. That's why I do, I do think that there is an impact in Arizona. There's, gonna be, there's an impact in Nevada. I do think that Texas sooner or later probably sooner than later is going to turn probably right mm-hmm. as you're seeing already the trends now right yeah Republicans the one smaller 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 lead I think in combination of having more diverse people there more people that have much more liberal points of view moving to to states like Texas because listen people are not moving to Texas because they want a more conservative point of view they're moving to Texas because it's just better in terms of um, uh, the economy in terms of housing housing is the biggest driver of probably the, that, that conversation so I do see that kind of influx actually having a bigger, bigger role in in those kind of states, especially states like Arizona and and also in, in Texas. And I think you can make the same case though for the Rust Belt, right? And I don't know how it's going to turn out, but the the fact that it's competitive and the fact that what Trump won in 2016 and what it looks like he's still very competitive in in the Rust Belt. I mean, those have historically been, you know, and when I mean history is. There's a couple of exceptions, but I'm literally looking at the electoral maps over the course of the the, the decades. And I mean, Pennsylvania, was Michigan, Minnesota, although Minnesota went blue again. These have been reliably Democrat strongholds, which are now in play, at least you can make, maybe with Trump only, but it, they're definitely in play. And so I wonder if that dynamic impacts other states. There seems to be just a lot of shifting that's yeah. been going on relative to what we've come to expect but but i think the shift is yeah that's such an interesting point you're bringing up i think the shift in my mind is probably more going to be tied to people living leaving from big cities into more suburbs into other states that are less populated i think coronavirus is going to have a massive effect especially as it relates to remote working and less having less of a need of having to live within those big cities to to sort of you know have access to those bigger jobs Mm -hmm. and i have to imagine that you'll see change in ideology, change in, in political leaning into areas that frankly had, you know, been pretty conservative in, in nature just simply because you just couldn't, you know, have those kind of jobs and, and access to, to capital because you had to be constrained to certain geographic locations. Yeah. And I think that's the other part. But if the inverse happens, I guess if the inverse happens, then why would that be the case? Like, what would be the driver? Like, I, I understand, I can rationalize pretty quickly mm-hmm. when I think about people from big cities tend to vote more Democrat than Republican. And as and they move to the burbs, and as whatever. they move to, as they spread out, as they move to burbs, you can see, you can literally see the trend right now going west, uh, go, you know, going east into like once again Arizona and into Texas to some degree. Um, that that's going to have an impact. But what will be the inverse of that? Or well, what will be some if, of the I, areas? You I don't know? know. I don't know if it's an. Or inverse. What will be the driver? I guess is the, what I the don't, driver. I don't understand. The, the one that I would say is the degree to which the conservative slash Republican, and those are very different things in some cases, but to the extent that they ad- they align themselves with a kind of populism or worker-driven kind of narrative, which is, you know, happening now. We saw it in 16. We're, we saw it in 20. Right. Um, like it or not, but that is not a traditional conservative messaging kind of a thing, right? So I think that's something that could drive it in another direction. Um Potentially. I think the other thing is from, again, an immigration standpoint, when we think of 
from a Latino standpoint, immigration that's been predominantly of uh, you know Mexican and in some cases Central American uh, extraction tend to overwhelmingly vote in one particular direction. Mm-hmm. But I think if that Florida dynamic holds on a broader level, particularly with, with um, Puerto Rican, South American, all of that, then that can begin to kind of drive some of that into the other column as well as as those yeah. as those communities kind of spread out and go well, to different parts of the country. Yeah. The, 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 it's hard to make the call right now just because we don't have enough enough data, but I just have a hard time. If the dynamics of why Florida happened, what happened, and if socialism is a big driver of that, then that feels like a fairly isolated dynamic in a state like Florida, right? I don't know if that's a big enough reason. I do think one of the big reasons could be to agree that Latinos felt they were neglected, which is a, it's a completely different dynamic, right? Which I think is more to speak to what happened in Ashby, Texas. Uh, then that could have a much bigger effect. I don't see the socialist sort of yeah. f- sort of fear of socialism as Look, being a, a driver yeah. that unifies a bigger chunk of Latinos outside of those that are most ties to South American countries. I think the fear factor, and I, I'm, I'm just seeing a political story that literally just published, um, which w- the, the headline says, uh, Dumpster Fire, House Democrats Trade Blame After Tuesday's Damage. And the, the article just goes on to talk about all the things that the Democrat Party, generally speaking, was not expecting congressional Senate races, the presidential tightness of the race, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think, um, you know, part of it is is at least with, with, with respect to black and brown communities. And I've seen this and I've said this. I've lived this in our professional work is the idea that I do believe there is a not insignificant group of those communities that does believe that they're being that they've been taken for granted yes by both parties but principally by the party to which they've had their the allegiance yeah, to sure. and so i think that that in a world of social where i'm not just seeing you once a year or once a election cycle on the debate and blah 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 right. in a year social where i can get message where i could come across more voices where i can do a little more research I think that that's starting to have some kind of a I role. Said, and I, call, I I said this, I've been saying this for a little while, yeah, right? Yeah. So, no, I agree. I, and I don't know Big how else to, it, ele- <laughs> no, but I just don't, I'm not, I'm not a political pundit, so I don't know right. how to like elegantly express it. All I'm saying is that I've seen it, I felt it, this sense of like, wait a minute, like, why is it automatic? Why do I automatically right, do this? Right. And I do think it, that's it, a real it, thing they have to solve. You can make the same case, of course, for the, for the black vote here in the, in the States. Um, as a strategy to be able to chip away, to take share away from the Democrat uh, uh, Democratic Party, that could, yeah, that feels like it's definitely could be applicable nationwide. Uh, I was only speaking about the dynamics specifically of Florida that I don't feel could replicate as easily to other other places. By the way, Florida, just to kind of give you a quick run through history, and then we probably move on to another thing, but um, about how, how actually this state swings. 1964, it's blue. 1968, it's red. 1972, it's red. 1976, it's blue. 1980, it's red. 1984, it's red. 88, it's red. Then it starts getting blue again in the 90s. 96, it's blue. Uh, 2000, obviously we know. 2008, it's blue. 2012, it's blue. So, I mean, it is it is over right. 40 years. It's definitely something that's moved back and forth quite a bit. And that's why the attention has been paid to it by both camps. But um, Agree. But uh, anyway, uh, super interesting, uh, obviously. So the other, th- the other part that I just kind of wanted to throw out, and maybe we can kind of, you know, I don't know, use this as the, the landing spot for this very unorthodox episode, but is... Um, you know, kind of where are we right now with respect to the democracy, with respect to our division, with respect to our sense of kind of coming together as Americans? I mean, you've got, you know, basically President Trump. I think all people of goodwill would look at the statement that he made last night 
and I'm saying all people of goodwill, I don't, I'm not looking at it from a political standpoint and look at that and say, that's not good. It's just not good when a sitting president undermines the integrity of the election um, that that's just happened, right? And you can kind of see the strategy right. developing, right? Yeah, the, um, the, the whole stop the counting now. I've, yeah. already, I've already won. Well, what he initially no. said was stop the voting, right? So, but but it doesn't matter because ultimately he meant what he meant is like he likes likes the results where they are, and I don't think he's going to like the results anymore as we go along because the mail-in right. ballots tend to favor his his opposition, right? So I yeah. think most people of goodwill would agree with that. I also think that most people of goodwill would look at the way that this presidency has been covered, the impact of 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 mainstream media, mainstream media in particular, the advent and kind of growth of alternative media. You know, you we mention Rogan almost all the time on this podcast, but like he's a perfect example of it. And you can also see a lot of the causes, let's say, or contributors to this kind of dynamic. And I just wonder where do we where do we end up with now? Especially like how do we come together? What do we what do we have yeah. to do? I think in respect of the outcome. Well, and I, I don't think it's in respect of the outcome. I think if you want this country to come together, frankly, Donald Trump needs to no longer be president. Mm-hmm. It's just, look, you can say how much he's, and I'm, you know, you and I have talked about this before. I, I, while I agree with you that he get there is a biased coverage on him. I think he brings it on himself all the time, and has been one that from day one has taken a very anti-media approach, and the media has responded appropriately to to that degree, right? Um, or if you want to say appropriate, but they responded to that, basically that approach. And it's really hard for someone like Trump, who his entire brand characteristic of how he operates, it's about conflict. He thrives in conflict. He creates conflict. I don't know how you can create unity in a country where that's the kind of leadership that you basically have. I, I frankly, and so if he wins, basically what I would say is that you're going to have a pretty big chunk of still this kind of turmoil for the next four years. And then hopefully whoever the next you know president is will not have that approach. And I think then the country can actually come back together. Um, on that, I do think that Biden just based simply about who he is and how he approaches things could do could do a better job. I think people are going to be unhappy, of course, those, especially those who are very pro-Trump. And you got to figure out how to reconcile the, you know, those people in a, in a, in a Biden uh, presidency if he, if he is able to sort of win here. Uh, but I don't see currently a way to really bring the country together when that is the brand that you have right now and who ultimately who leads it, right? We talk about this from a business standpoint all the time is that when you talk about corporate culture, it starts at the top, right? How CEOs behave, how boards behave, that directly gets translated how so how the whole company sort of acts, behaves, Country. et cetera, right? So yeah. I think it's the exact same dynamic here. And by the way, it's not saying anything about his policy. It's simply saying him and how he operates. I just don't see uh, coming together or unity, a message that he's ever actually delivered. Yeah, which which is, you know, testament to the fact that it's it's true, I believe, and I think the data will show it, what I said earlier, that it doesn't matter who ran against him. It literally does not matter. No. Because the only vote that there was enthusiasm in two camps, the Trump voters and the people who were and the not war, Trump and the not Trump <laughs> that's where the enthusiasm was. Yeah. I'm yeah, not I saying agree. there weren't policy decisions also wrapped up with that. Sure. It doesn't matter. Po- enthusiasm is what gets you on some level to go vote, especially if you do it in person. Um so I think that's that's true, and I think it's fair. Look, I, I, I said, I think earlier, even on this podcast, that if I was a Democratic uh, strategist, which, of course, I don't know anybody who would hire me for that job, but if I was, I would say that a big, a big, um, a powerful statement would have just been the word enough, right? Enough. Just like, 
It doesn't even, it's almost like it doesn't even matter what you believe in. We can just agree that we shouldn't have this. Right. That would have been a very, you know, a very powerful kind of statement. So I understand that point. I do want to just, I would caution though one thing, which is, you know, there's be, there'll be some disappointment among some people. I think that there can be a risk of being, especially if, if Biden holds out and wins, to be very cavalier about the number of people that we're talking about here. We're talking about, in this case, not uh, almost 70 million people who, who I'm not saying all of them are going to be equally disappointed, but who have a fundamental set of needs that may vary in terms of intensity that they don't see being oh, yeah. addressed. And I think the whole idea of like, well, eventually they'll they'll think like us is exactly it's what mistake. got you there to begin That's with. exactly right. You know, and, and going back to what we started, right? So a lot we don't know, what we do know is there wasn't this blue wave. If Biden would have come out and just demolished Trump in this in this presidential election, it would then, be a mandate. Then, well, not just a mandate, but I think then the the I could definitely see the case where someone would say, you know what, 2016 was an anomaly. People just wanted something oh, different. They saying. wanted yeah, something yeah. that just wasn't yeah, in the, the system, and it was just like, you know what, we we literally got dumped that out, start over, forget about it. So yeah, the group of people that are all for that. Don't worry about them. They're always going to be the extremes. They're always going to be niche. Let's, let's figure out how to solve for the other 98%. I think that could, I could almost see that rationale if that was the case. What you're seeing now is that, listen, buddy, like this is going to come down to, and look, there's a path here that maybe Biden actually wins fairly big. Not, not huge, but fairly big if he's able to lock on a, a couple of these states that he's, that he's leading in. But at the same time is there's enough of a vote here for Trump that, to your point, like if you neglect this, uh, if you don't find a way to reconcile with these people that have felt like they've been left out, the thing that I always think about is that statement that I think I shared with you. This is like one of my aha moments where I feel like I better began to understand uh, Trump supporters because as someone that is pretty liberal, that lives in my own bubble, we've talked about this, right? It, it, you know, I've, t- I've talked to plenty of people where they're like, I don't know how anyone could ever support Trump. I'm like, okay, like settle, settle down. down. Yeah, settle down. But when I heard that comment, and it was this, I forget where it was from, and it was, uh, I forget what the source was, but it was basically this guy saying, listen, when I think about what who I am, what I like to do, you know, I like to go hunt, I, I work hard, I have a blue-collar job, but, you know, but I'm proud of what I do, I'm, I love my family, and, da, da, da. and, you know, I have one camp that makes me feel bad of who I am, he was talking about Hillary, and one camp with Trump who makes, actually celebrates who I am. Like, how do I not vote for a guy that basically tell me, hey, it's okay that you are very, that you're pro-America, you should be. It's okay that you like to hunt. That's fine, right? It's, it's literally like, it's part of your rights if, if, if you, to do that. And this notion that if they feel accepted and rejected, and I, I, and I, I can never get over that um, deplorables comment that Hillary made, I think was such a, it sort of captured the moment of the miss that the Democratic Party had in understanding the broad sense of what this U.S. and, and really the, the the range of what Americans are in this country. Yeah, I think all you said is very true, and especially when you consider the earlier kind of community of color shifting that we've seen, uh, particularly with the black community. I think that that idea of very quickly dismissing these votes is is you do that at your own peril for yeah. sure for future you know kind of um, uh, elections. Look, I you know I um. I understand. I, I agree with what you said in terms of the tone is set from the very top, and I do think that because Trump is how he is and who he is, he tends to cast the world in you know in in you know basically 
stark contrast, right? It's either with me, without me, and it's instantly divisive. And at this point, the the, the marriage between the media and Trump is so completely just whacked right. out at this point that it's very difficult to imagine any scenario where Trump remains that there isn't continued rifts and whatever over the next four years. He, he will literally have to change who he is and it just is not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And and I, however, <laughs> I do think that, again, um, the idea of things just kind of calming down very quickly, uh, assuming Biden wins, would be a lot up to him to actually set that kind of tone mm-hmm. and really govern in the way that brings people together. There's, you know, I have a, tremendous amount of doubt in that ability um, and history. And I think that that's where, you know, the the sort of TBD is still out there in a big way. Sure. Um, but, but I do think that the whole idea of like trying to, which is a theme for us, right? Connecting with people, like you said, the person asked you, how could anybody ever vote this way? Well, my first question would be, I don't know, have you asked any of them? Right. Well, that's part like, of it. Like, have you ever talked to any, anybody? You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, we, that we do that a lot. Yeah. And also because what we sort of think about is immediately the sort of the the like these characters that we see online that are these extreme versions of those supporters. And you're <laughs> right when you see them, like, well, that person is just crazy. Like, why would anyone want to be that, right? And I think it's sort of fails to capture the grandness of the um, just the, the or the volume of people that do support them. Yeah, for one way or another, like, for one reason or another. And I think that's that's something as a president you have to be able to uh, go out and really. Um, um, by the way, they just called. Look at that! I figured we, it was going to happen. Eleven twenty a.m. They just at least New York time is calling Wisconsin for uh, for Biden. For Biden, yeah. So now, yeah. So he will be up to two forty seven, I guess. So yeah. Um, eleven twenty on Wednesday. Eleven twenty a.m. Pacific time on Wednesday. Yeah, <laughs> gotta be really specific here. We'll see what happens by yeah. the time somebody's hearing this tomorrow morning. But um, but uh, yeah. Um. So I mean, how how, how should we sort of finalize this? Um, I think the look the next coming weeks are going to be really important. I think for for this for for us for all of us to actually look at the nuance of how our country has been operating and and how it needs to operate going forward. Um, to that point, you know, I think any time where you sort of are taking a very blanket approach of seeing a group and thinking they're just all just one, all think the same way, operate the same way. That's a mistake. I think it happens a lot in the political sector. I think diverse people tend to get all bucketed into very specific buckets. And what you're seeing here already from just the numbers around Latinos and african Americans, it's just not the case. And the one thing I would say as someone that is, once again, pretty liberal, is that I like the fact, and I hate to say it, but I like the fact that you see more diversity in points of view politically from some of these groups because it just means that we need to be relevant to everyone. And anytime a group can think that they could just take uh, Latinos for granted, take black Americans for granted. That's a problem. And I want to see more policy coming from either side that even regardless of who wins the presidency, regardless of who ke- who keeps or takes control of the Senate, is that everyone is more concerned of the actual needs of these various constituencies because they have to fight for them because they, can, they feel they can, get, they, they can get them yeah. or that they're up for grabs, right? And I think that puts us in a more position of power um, so no one gets a pass in my mind. Democrats don't get a pass and Republicans don't get a pass. And I think if that's the outcome of this election, then you know what? We're going to be a better place. Yeah. Well, I agree with all of that, um, except for the part where you said you hate to say it. I actually like to say it. I like to say that um, that we should have you know, thriving disagreements and not the ability to simply look at somebody and go, oh, I know the way you think just by how you look. I think that's really bad. So I love the fact that you can't do that with people. And 
and I and I and I'm and I'm supportive of the kind of um, let's say movements that highlight that fact. So um, to that end, we didn't do courage or cringe on this because it's um, everything is cringe. So, but I will tell you, <laughs> just from my standpoint, really quick, courage or cringe. The Trump announcement last night, super cringe for a number of reasons, and I honestly think it's it's a disappointment, if anything, to a lot of his voters, the people who voted for him. Um, there's maybe another show just about that, but I think that's cringe. I think the media coverage in general for the last, I mean, let's just say for four years, but leading up to this, when you combine it with the polls, I think is also in the cringe factor and the polls themselves, particularly the kind of popular, I mean, I saw a Quinnipiac Quinnipiac poll that was 11 points, 11 points. You know, Iowa was seven points up and they lost by seven points. I mean, just the swings are so varied that the combination of those polls with, you know, the kind of, I'm not talking about the alternative media, but the mainstream kind of media, I think to me was also something that is just so left so much more to be desired. There'll be more to obviously unpack later, but I think we maybe can just leave it there for now, get this episode out and kind of keep, uh, keep seeing what happens um, here. But um, you know, if you're, if you're okay with that. Let's do it. So I, I thank everybody for, uh, for listening to this episode of TDR and uh, we'll see you again next week with hopefully some, uh, some definition about what's going on in the meantime, just, uh, you know, keep the faith and, uh, and remember that we're all in this together and let's, uh, let's act that way. Have a good one. If you enjoyed this episode of the diversity remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.